Not too long ago, a, a gentleman by the name of Brendan Ike made the news. Brendan Ike is co-founder and uh, was recently appointed a CEO of Mozilla Firefox. Um, some of you are familiar with the web browser Firefox. If you're not, it's a big deal. It's a big company. He's one of the co-founders and had just recently been appointed CEO. What would you do if your beliefs, your faithfulness to Christ caused you economic hardship? What would you do? I don't know if Mr. Ike is a Christian or not, but Mr. Ike was pressured to step down from his position because in 2008, Mr. Ike had given $1,000 in support of Proposition 8 in California, which was an affirmation of traditional marriage. Mr. Ike was never known to have discriminated against his LGBT um, co-workers or subordinates, LGBT, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. He was never uh, known to withhold employment from those in the LGBT community. Mr. Ike had never been known to refuse a a promotion to those um, who identify as LGBT. It was just simply that Mr. Ike supported traditional marriage and as a result was pressured to step down. There is greater and greater pressure within uh, the business community and many other communities to not simply not discriminate, but to ally themselves with positions that some believers would have, very, would have moral difficulty with. We're not talking about discrimination. We're not talking about not hiring. We're not talking about being cruel or mean. Just simply saying, I support a certain definition of marriage. You see, it's not there are certain businesses, and we see this with Firefox, we, there are certain businesses that are not asking you to simply not discriminate. They are, simply, they are asking you to celebrate. And if you do not celebrate then you belong in the closet and you belong to, you deserve to be shunned. So again, I ask you, what would you do if your beliefs compromised your economic well-being? I'm sure Mr. Ike is going to be just fine. Co-founder, if I'm sure he's still got stock options. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a generous um, uh, benefit package as he left. I'm sure he's going to be just fine. But what about you? And what about me? What would happen if your social security was threatened? What would you do if your Medicare? What would you do if a scholarship for the college and the university you want to go to is going to be withheld because of something as I believe in traditional marriage? What would you do? As we come to Revelation chapter 18, beginning with verse 9, I I think that this is going to be relevant to us. So, let me give you some context and just some introductory material, and then we'll actually delve into this passage of text. Let me give you the context of where we've been so that we're all kind of 
up to speed with one another. You might recall that this section, chapter 18, is actually part of a larger literary unit. It is actually from chapter 17, 1 to 19, 10, is a literary unit that focuses primarily on the judgment of end-time Babylon. End-time Babylon is described as a woman of ill repute who offers every form of earthly satisfaction to those who will join with her. Here's what she does. She draws people away from the true religion of following Christ and to the purity that is found in Christ and she lures them away to idolatry and immorality. That's what Babylon does. That's what this woman portrayed This portrayal of this woman does. So that's kind of where we've been. And that's where we're going today. Here is our our primary point today. The main thing we're going to try to focus on. If I can stick to one subject. And not wander too, too much. Is that our main point is that worldliness is going to be judged. And people, you and I, are called to be separate. We are called to come out of this world system. It's important. We need to understand what's going on in Revelation chapter 18. Because I want you to understand that the enticements of this world will not bring satisfaction. Every good gift, every good thing is given to us by God. And what Revelation 18 does is it takes us back to Genesis Genesis 3. Half God said, God gave Adam and Eve everything they had want for a fruitful, productive, enjoying, satisfactory life. And the serpent came in and said, Really? God's withheld this from you. I know he's giving you all that other stuff, but he got their mind focused on this one prohibition, this one thing. And they said, Well, maybe we could have that as well. Revelation chapter 18 is that theme. Has God really said, look at all the things that God has withheld from you. Oh, you're a Christian. So I guess that means you're not going to be able to have fun anymore. It's important that we know that our satisfaction is not found in the allurements of this culture. They are not found in the enticements of this harlot, but in God who has given freely and has given us every good thing. You lack nothing. We need to heed the call and come out of her. Now before we get into this, I I need to give you some background information that I think is really important. I need, as we go through this passage of text, there needs to be a backdrop, a filter through which we understand Revelation chapter 18 and today verses 9 through 24. But there's a backdrop that is crucial if we are going to understand it. The first part of this backdrop is a historical understanding of what's going on. I want you to understand that what John is talking about here is not new. John isn't just making up some new thing. Actually, John is taking us all the way back to the Old Testament, believe it or not. 
Remember? We're interpreting the book of Revelation through the scriptures of the Old Testament. So we are not surprised that the language that we're going to see in Revelation chapter 18 is found in the Old Testament. What John is going to do, so just about everything John says has already been said before in the past. And John is going to use the language of the fall of historic Babylon and the fall of the historic city of Tyre to describe the fall of this woman that he's identifying with Babylon. So, for instance, like on Wednesday night, if you were here Wednesday night, um, this is what we did. If you weren't here Wednesday night, um, you missed something really fun. What we did was we read Isaiah chapter 47, and then we looked. I want you to compare the parallels between Isaiah 47 and Revelation 18, and I want you to look at those parallels, and you will be amazed at how uncanny the, the parallels between Isaiah 47 and Revelation 18 are. Unbelievably parallel. Guess what Isaiah 47 talks about? It talks about the fall of this ancient empire called Babylon. You recall, right? A long time ago, an empire arose, and it was the Babylonian Empire. And she came to prominence, and she was ruled and, and, and reigned. And if you've read the book of Daniel, Daniel was living during the time of the Babylonian Empire. And she came, and she ruled, and she reigned. And she reigned for a little while, and then the empire of Babylon collapsed. Actually, it was overtaken by the, another empire. Isaiah 47 is the description of the fall of historic Babylon. Does that make sense? Likewise, if you read, or read to read in Jeremiah 50 and 51, you would also read of the fall of Babylon. This historic city that actually existed at a point in time. She ruled and reigned and then she fell. If you were to read Ezekiel chapter 26 and 27, you would read of the destruction and the fall of the very prosperous city of Tyre. There was a city called Tyre. She was a seafaring people. She was on the coast and she was very prosperous and she, she was a source of great wealth to a lot of people. Well, one day, because of her sin, God judged her and she fell. So we're going to see today, I want you to understand, we're going to see the language of the fall of historic Babylon and the fall of historic Tyre um, related to the fall of this spiritual end-time Babylon. So, does that make sense? We need to understand this. That these historic cities fell. The Bible describes it. And John's going to take that language and use it to describe the fall of this spiritual city. This end-time city, if you will. Actually, it's not even a city. It's a system. And he's going to use that language to describe that fall. If we don't have that understanding, this, this whole thing is going to... You can come up with all kinds of crazy ideas. But if we use that language and we use that as our reference, I think we can come to a very good understanding of what Revelation 18 is talking about. So, let me real quickly say that Babylon in the book of Revelation is not a literal earthly city. Okay? Babylon in the book of Revelation is not a literal earthly city. 
I'm going to say that again. Babylon in the book of Revelation is not a literal earthly city. It is a system. It is a worldview. It is a system that lures people from Christ into idolatry and into impurity. Babylon in the book of Revelation is transtemporal. That means she transcends time. She's not limited to any, any particular era or any particular point in time. Babylon in the book of Revelation was alive and well in the city of Babylon in Genesis 10. Babylon was alive and well in the Babylonian Empire. Babylon was alive and well in the Medo-Persian Empire. Babylon was alive and well in the, in the Roman culture of John's day. And Babylon is alive and well today. Babylon is not a literal earthly city. So, I mean, I know people go and say, maybe this is America. It's not America. It's more than that. I think the principles of Babylon are found in America. It's just not isolated to just America. It's not China. It's not Japan. It's, it's transtemporal. It's transcultural. That means it transcends culture. It's not just American culture. It transcends... I would assume that this culture exists in even the remotest tribes in the world because they are still those remote tribes are still fallen human beings alright so the first thing we need to understand is that historical background the next thing we need to understand is this, the cultural background into which John is writing in fact Revelation chapter 18 and then for our purposes 9 through 24 really only makes sense if we remember the close association between idolatry and economic prosperity in Asia Minor in John's day so when John is writing to these churches in Asia Minor there was a very close um, association with economic security and paganism we saw that in chapter 2 and 3 remember that if you were a, a stonemason or you were a potter or you were an artisan or a weaver or whatever you were, it was more likely than not that you would have had to have been part of a trade guild. Otherwise, you don't work. You're going, okay, well, I'll join the trade guild and I'll get a job. Fine, that's great. Except in order to be part of the trade guild, you would have to swear allegiance to their patron saint and to Caesar. So when you went into your trade guild meeting, you would grab a little pinch of incense and sacrifice it, basically, just kind of throw it into a fire in the name of the patron god, and you might even be called to say, Caesar is Lord. But a Christian couldn't do that. A Christian had to say, Jesus is Lord. And then once you're in the meeting, who knows what kind of debauchery takes place. So do you see, and then the Christian who would say, well, I'm not going to be part of that. Guess what? That Christian doesn't work. So we need to understand the close association with pagan worship and economic security. So if you were a Christian in those days and you said, well, listen, I'm not going to participate in that idolatry and I'm certainly not going to participate in the immorality that takes place within those trade guild meetings, your economic, you were not going to be able to feed your family. And we saw this in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We need to understand that not all of John's readers were persecuted and poor. Some of them were. 
Many of them were doing just fine economically because they had compromised. All throughout Revelation chapter 2 and 3, what was, there were those who were persecuted, there were those who were poor, but there were other churches who, what did they say? says, you've aligned yourself with Jezebel. You've aligned yourself with Balaam. These were people who lured people away from true faith in, in God and to sexual immorality. These people were people who compromised the things of God. So those are our two backdrops. And they need to kind of help guide us as we understand this passage of Scripture. So the first one, John's using Old Testament language to describe this this end time system that lures people away from, from faithfulness to Christ and from the purity of Christ. And that it is very easy for us to prefer economic stability over faithfulness to the cross of Christ. So with that as our background, let's go ahead and read our text, and then we'll look at it a little more closely. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her and they will see smoke of her burning standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment saying woe woe the great city Babylon the strong city for in one hour your judgment has come and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore cargoes of gold and silver and of precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. The fruit of you has gone from you and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, she who was clothed in fine linen, linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and they were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Then a strong angel came and took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer, and the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer, and no craftsman or any craft will be found in you any longer, and the sound of the mill will not be heard in you any longer, and the light of the lamp will not shine in you any longer, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all nations were deceived by your sorcery, and in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints, and of all who had been slain of the earth. Now, 
the main thrust here of verses 9 through 19 is to describe how those who cooperate with Babylon will mourn when they witness her destruction. You see, they have come to rely on her for their livelihood. Babylon is basically... Basically, these people are mourning because of their economic loss. Economic loss is more important than the loss of true faith in Christ. They are willing to give up true faith in Christ for economic prosperity. You will note that there are three groups of mourners in this passage. The three groups of mourners are kings, merchants, and mariners. Make no mistake, John is not accidental about mentioning these three groups. Guess where I'm going to find these three groups? They're going to be found in the Old Testament, in the fall of Tyre. If if we are to read in Ezekiel, chapter 27, verses 29 through 30, this is what we're going to read. Your wealth, your wares, this is the fall of Tyre. Your wealth, your wares, your merchandise, your sailors and your pilots, your repairers of seams, your dealers and merchandise, all your men who are at war, who are in you, with all your company that is in your midst, will fall into the heart of the seas on the day of your overthrow. At the sound of the cry of your pilots, the pasture lands will shake. All who handle the oar, the sailors and all the pilots of the sea, will come down from their ships. They will stand on the land. Do you see that? We see the, the, the rowers or the pilots of this. And then in verses... Um, 35 and 36 all the inhabitants of the coastland are appalled at you and their kings are horribly afraid they are troubled in countenance the merchants among the peoples hiss at you and become terrified and you will cease to be forever so as John thinks about the, the fall of this economic woman he recalls the fall of Tyre and he lists the same groups of people so let's look at this first group the, the, the response of the kings to the fall of Babylon we will note first of all that Babylon has been their source of satisfaction it is because of this this economic system if you will that these kings got rich They enjoy all of the luxuries because of this system. And now they weep as they see her destroyed. We should note, and I'll remind you again as we go through this, this is ultimately selfish concern. They are not concerned with Babylon. They are not concerned that God had been offended or that the righteous have been killed, all they were concerned about is that the source of our luxury is now gone. You will notice their foolishness. The kings, along with every other group we'll talk about today, call her the great city. She is not a great city. This was a system that provided for their ease and it provided for their comfort and seemed to be great. But when God comes in judgment, she is not great. God is great. 
Babylon, the system is not great. And all who put their trust in her and think she is something will be utterly dismayed when God shows forth His greatness and His power. So where are the kings to put their trust and their hope? And where are you and me to put our trust and our hope? Not in any system that promises wealth or security or economic well-being, but in God alone. She is not great. If you think that our economic system is great, it is fragile. It is great in one sense in that it has provided prosperity beyond compare for all of us in here. But God is great. The system that provided for their ease and provided for their their comfort is not great when God shows up. And hence, it shows the foolishness for trusting in the temporals to satisfy. I will tell you this, the temporal will never satisfy. It just won't. Because it was never meant to. You were never designed to be fulfilled by economic prosperity. You may have economic prosperity and you can praise God and thank God for it. It was just never meant to satisfy you. So all of the new trinkets and toys that you get make you joyful for a while. But you will have to go get more to keep being satisfied because they were just never meant to do what only God can do. God and Jesus Christ was meant to fill your heart with joy and satisfaction. These other things are great blessings from God, but they were never meant to satisfy you. And hence they don't. Well, now we see the merchants. The merchants of the earth also mourn. So while the kings of Babylon enjoyed luxury, the merchants of the earth were the ones who carried the luxurious items to the end of the earth. In other words, they were enriched by being the traders of these luxurious items. They bought and sold. And as they bought and sold and got wealth and paid their taxes, the kings got rich and they enjoyed their luxury. The merchants got rich and enjoyed their luxury. But the merchants mourn as well. Why do they mourn? They mourn because the source of their wealth has been destroyed. Once again, they are not they do not mourn because this woman Babylon persecuted the saints. They do not mourn because she lured people away from Christ. They are not mourning in repentance for their sin. They are not mourning because God was dishonored and Christ was reduced to nothing. They do not mourn because they oppressed human people. They mourn because the source of their income is gone. They do not mourn because they have offended a holy God. They do not mourn because they have perverted justice. They do not mourn because they have diminished the glory of God or dishonor the majesty of their Savior. They mourn because the means of me getting rich have now been destroyed. It seems strange that John makes this very long and detailed list of cargo. Have you noticed that? I wonder why John does that. 
number of ideas have been put forth. One idea that I think bears merit, I'm not 100% sold on it, but I think it, it has some merit and is worth considering further, is that much of these, not all of them, but many of these things listed were the items used to build the original tabernacle in the wilderness. And so many have put forth that this is basically a false temple, an illusion, just as the real temple was put together. And these precious things were used for the glory of God. Now these are being used for the glory of men. And it's a perversion of true worship. I think there's merit there. I haven't looked at it far, far close enough to know. So I'll go, here's kind of what I think. And I, I'm going to be pretty general about this. If you look at this list of cargoes, um, almost all of them all have to do with items of luxury. They are not items of necessity. They are items of luxury. These are the things that people will sell their souls to obtain. These are the things that people will say, yeah, that is worth denying Christ so that I can have that. These are the items of luxury. These are the things like fame. I'd rather be famous than be obedient to Christ. I would love to support missions and to support the gospel going to the end of the earth. Here's 20 bucks. Meanwhile, I go out and I buy a new handbag for $1,000. This is that pair of Jimmy Choo shoes. I know probably most of the ladies in here don't wear those. Probably a good pair of boots is a... $10,000 suit $5,000 dress that's worn on the red, red carpet once these are the luxurious items that people say I seek to attain and if it means me not being faithful to the people of God and to the Christ who bought them then you know what Christ will understand once I get famous and once I get all of these things then I can really do some good things for God these are the items that comprise a life of worldliness these are items that are all about living in the present apart from the glory of God these are the things of self-indulgence I want you to understand that having wealth and having these things is not in and of itself a sin. So if you have that handbag or that suit or whatever, those things in and of themselves are not sinful. You and I sitting in this room, there is not one of us in this room who is poor. All of us by the world's standards are filthy rich. Filthy rich. Do you have clean water? You're filthy rich. But these are the items that are used for self-indulgence and not to glorify God. These are the, This is wealth that is not a means to glorify God and benefit others, but it is a wealth that is simply meant to satisfy my own selfish ambition. 
and my own greed and my own desire and my own lusts. It is apart from the glory of God. It is all about living for self. So I do not begrudge you if you have stuff, nice stuff. I just want you to understand that your your understanding of economics has God being honored first. And I would encourage you to honor God first in your material blessings. And make sure that He is glorified and that He is honored. As we prepare to go on mission to Ecuador and maybe other places, I want you to think about that. But here's really where we see the extent of their corruption. Here's where we see how bad their corruption is. You will notice the last thing that they have. Slaves and human lives. The ESV puts it, slaves, that is human lives. These people buy and sell human beings so that they can enrich themselves. These people enslave and entrap and buy and sell human beings so that they can be rich. You say, well, good, that doesn't apply to me. I don't know if it applies to you. Maybe it does. And it probably applies to me. Here's the thing, folks. Take out your phone. What you think about your phone? I don't know who made your phone. But was it made by slave labor? Did some little nine-year-old Chinese girl lock to chained up to a wall make your phone? Because if so, we have traded in a low-cost phone for the life of a human being. How dare we do that? I know that you and I do not go through every single thing that we possess and see where it originated, but you and I can start to become aware of where did that produce come from? Because I guarantee you, some of the things that we eat, in other words, I don't want to pay 69 cents for a, pound, for a pound of bananas. I want to pay 49 cents. And if it means to enslave a person so that I can get my bananas for 49 cents, by golly, that's what it's going to take. You and I have participated in the slave trade. How did I get this? Ta- did this tablet come in cheap? Because some kid works 18 hours a day and gets one bathroom break and is fed a bowl of slop? When we were in the bicycle business, we had to pay very careful attention because many of our bikes came from places where slave labor was employed to bring those bikes because somebody doesn't want to pay $400 for a bike, they want to pay $300 for a bike. I know there were times that we sold product that was made by slave labor. I know it. Not because I have proof, but just the law of averages. So when we eat and we get things for a bargain, where are they coming from? You say, well, I don't involve myself in slave trade. When we hire people who have escaped their country to come into our country to get a better life, many of them have been part of slave trading.
when we look on the internet and people go to pornographic sites and we think, oh, it's just a bunch of willing participants. Maybe so. But I'll tell you, right now, behind that, there's a slave trade. And girls are being sold into it. All for our pleasure. I remember when we were sharing the gospel in Venice Beach many, 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 many years ago. Venice Beach is a place that people think is just wonderful. It's a despicable, horrible place. And we were talking to people and talking to children and talking to grown-ups and they were saying, yes, there are many people here. The car pulls up, perhaps a limo, maybe not, and mom and dad send their kids off. They're not going to school. They're going to some filthy film studio where they are going to be raped and abused and molested all for the sake of satisfying the pleasures, the carnal pleasures of mankind. And mom and dad are going to get a couple of bucks. All the items of luxury, slaves, that is human souls. Next year in February, the Super Bowl is coming in to, to Phoenix. Do you realize how, how prevalent the slave trade will be for the Super Bowl? There will be girls who are enslaved and boys who, who are enslaved and they will be brought here to do horrific things for those who have the money. The Bible goes on and says, The fruit for which your soul desires, to desire anything in place of God, will be taken. It will be lost forever. Folks, this is why Jesus says, Store up your treasures in heaven. Don't put it here on earth. Once again, they call it the great city. They believe the lie. Then we see the mariners. These would be blue-collar workers. You have kings. You have middle-class people in the merchants. And then you have the mariners. And they throw dust on their head. Not in repentance, but, in finan- but because of financial loss. And all of these groups stand afar off. They do not want to be part of what is happening to Babylon. And then we hear this. Then the fa- rejoice, you faithful. And we have to ask ourselves the question, is it right for us to rejoice over the downfall of uh, somebody's downfall? Isn't God a God of love? How, can we, is, how is it that we can rejoice over the downfall of these people? Why? Because these are slave traders. Because they take innocent people and chain them to the wall and say, make this. Because they promote luxury. Would you rejoice in a sweatshop, the, the young kids in a sweatshop being released and set free? Would you rejoice? Rejoice because that's going to come to an end. Because God Almighty is going to, in His justice, have His fill of this wickedness and He's going to say, Enough! It's done! This is the consummation of God's response to wickedness. And we will rejoice. We rejoice when... 
when the prison camps of World War II were opened and the men and the women were set free, we rejoiced. Rejoice, you heavens. God is going to set the... These are the people. This is the system that has enslaved people and dragged them to hell. Literally pulled them away from following Christ and brought them to hell. And God says, now rejoice. It's done. She will exist no longer. Yeah, we'll rejoice. By the way, I believe that this is the consummation of God's response to the prayers of the martyred saints in chapter 6, verse 10. God has vindicated His name and He has brought justice. We need to remember that justice is one of God's attributes, one of God's perfections. Sometimes when we think about God's attributes as His mercy and His love and His grace and we rejoice in those. But don't defang and don't declaw and don't try to tame God by stripping Him of His justice. Because His justice is as much an attribute and a perfection of God as His grace and His mercies. So our question is, will you be rejoicing or will you be mourning? If your treasure is with Babylon when this economic system fails, you will be mourning. But if your treasures are in heaven, then you may be sad that you don't have it as easy, but you will rejoice in God our Savior. Because nobody can take that from you. Nobody can take your salvation. Nobody can take Christ. Nobody can undo Calvary. And then we see this angel and this millstone, and I'll just kind of run through this. But we see exact language in Jeremiah 51:63. Let's put this. And as soon as you finish reading the scroll, you will tie a stone to it and throw it into the middle of the Euphrates and say, "Just so." shall Babylon sink down and not rise again because of the calamity that I'm going to bring upon her and they will become exhausted. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. So take the words that I've spoken to you, Jeremiah, tie it around a millstone, throw it into the midst of the Euphrates River. That's the fate of Babylon. John takes that language and says, I saw a great angel throw a a millstone down into the sea. This is the permanent judgment of Babylon. It is a severe judgment. Remember Matthew chapter 18, 6? But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned into the depths of the sea. This is what Babylon does. She causes the little ones who believe in Christ to stumble and to fall. And she is now judged with the most severe judgment. She will be thrown down into the sea and she will be remembered no more. Babylon cannot be bothered with Jesus and now Jesus will not bestow upon her the blessings of his presence. And we see this in a list that he um, in a list of gifts. His kindness should be leading them to repentance. The joy of music, the joy of marriage, the joy of productivity, the joy of productive work, the joy of all of these things should be that which leads men to repent and rejoice in the things of God, but it just led them further and further into their immorality. And now that kindness is removed and she is judged. So let me conclude with this. For what will you lament? What will cause you to lament? Would the downfall of the entertainment industry cause you to lament? Oh man, I don't get to watch TV anymore. I mean, hey, I got shows that I like to watch. I'll probably go home and watch some football. Will the downfall of sports 
clothing chains, malls, and all the ways that facilitate man's pride when they fall. Will you mourn? Where are your treasures stored? Will you rejoice in the God who brings justice or will you mourn when the mall collapses? See, this is a question of the heart. This is all about your heart. What do you desire? What do you love? What do you love more than anything? Once again, if you go shopping at the mall this afternoon, or we don't have a mall. If you were to go shopping at a mall, go shopping, enjoy the fruits that God has given. Understand that those fruits came from God's gracious hand. Make sure you honor God first in all the great things He's given. This is why we say grace over a meal. I don't pray that God protect the meal from, I don't know, salmonella. I pray He does, but that's why we say grace. We're saying thank you, God. This came from your hand. The reason I have plenty to eat is because you've been gracious to me. This should cause me to bow in humility and say, Thank you, Lord. I am not starving today. Do you rejoice to live for God or do you rejoice to live for the mom? Will you seek God's good gifts? The ones that, Will you enjoy them freely? He's given us so many good things, even things for personal pleasure. Will we just enjoy and have fun with? Enjoy them. Just understand them. And understand that we are to seek first the kingdom of God. Our Lord knows exactly what you need. Seek first the kingdom of God. All those other things God will take care of. Let's stand and let's pray.